Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, it's Jeremy here. And for this week's World Review episode, we're bringing you one that was recorded live at the Progressive Governance Summit which was hosted here in Berlin, but took place digitally and drew in speakers from across the transatlantic policy academic media space, including Canada's Justin Trudeau, the German Vice Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Vice President of the European Commission Margrethe Vestager, and a number of other interesting policymakers and thinkers. The New Statesman was really proud to be media partner at the Progressive Governance Summit, and we hosted several events. And one of them we recorded as a live world review episode. It was hosted by me, and I was joined by Constanze Stelzenmüller, a great on German foreign policy at the Brookings Institute, and by Michael Miebach, the chair and co-founder of Das Progressive Zentrum, a center-left German think tank. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about Merkel's legacy. We talked about the possible coalitions that might take power in Germany after the election in September. And we talked about what priorities those coalitions would need to take up if they did win power. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do too. Welcome to this Progressive Government Summit discussion in cooperation with the New Statesman magazine on Germany after Merkel. Um, this is a live event being recorded or being filmed in Berlin and in Washington, D.C. And this will also go out as an episode of the New Statesman's World Review podcast on global affairs. So it will also be available there later this week as we record this. So I'm very pleased to be joined for this conversation at a very timely moment by two great commentators and observers of German politics and Germany in the world to talk through this. Here with me in Berlin is Michael Miebach, the chair and co-founder of Das Progressive Zentrum think tank. Um, he is also a senior advisor in the Bundestag and a great person to talk to us about the view from here within German politics. So good to have you here, Michael. Thank you. Likewise. And down the line from Washington, we're very pleased to be joined by Constanze Stelzenmüller, who is the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings. Uh, Constanze was formerly at the German Marshall Fund and at Die Zeit. And um, she actually recently wrote uh, an excellent essay on precisely this subject, the, the legacy of Angela Merkel and what, what the future might hold for Germany uh, in foreign affairs. So very good to have her with us. Thank you for joining us, Constanze. Good morning from Washington. Nice to be with you. Okay, well, I think let's just get stuck into our conversation. And um, let's start by kind of looking at where things have come over the last 16 years, the, the Merkel era in German politics. And I'd love to hear sort of relatively briefly from both of you, how would you rate the Merkel chancellorship in, its, in, in, in the way it has responded to the challenges that Germany has faced over that 
period. And I think I'll go to you first, Constanza, to kind of give us the, 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 the foreign policy view, the view from, from the outside, and also perhaps you can convey some of the points you made in that excellent essay I mentioned. So uh, over to you for some quick initial thoughts. All right, thank you. Well, thank you very much for, particularly for the plugger um, for my essay. Everybody read it, please. The editors at Foreign Affairs tried quite hard to get me to be a, a little more, you know, to come down on one side or the other on this question. And what I do in the essay is to say that that's very hard to do. She's not one of these German chancellors who will be remembered for doing one great thing, like Konrad Adenauer with, with Westbundung, um, Willy Brandt uh, for atonement with Eastern Europe and going to his knees in Warsaw, or Helmut Kohl for two great things, really, um, the, uh, the reunification of Germany and the introduction of the euro. Um, and of course, all these men, and in fact, some of their other uh, peers had some fairly notable flaws. They were womanizers, they were heavy drinkers, they smoked, they were, some of them were unreliable after 4pm. And Merkel is none of these things. She's, I think, notably uh, devoid of vanity or even a shade of corruption. Um, she has a, a sense of humor, which she occasionally shows to people, but her record is more complicated. I would say she de definitely needs to be credited for making the country wealthier, more powerful in her tenure, for keeping Europe together when it mattered during the Eurozone crisis and during the pandemic, which was also a crisis of, of governance and, and of the European economies. And I would also say that, that um, letting in the refugees in 2015 was a great humanitarian gesture, which took huge pressure off uh, the neighboring smaller countries who would have had much greater problems with uh, such a huge amount of refugees. But then many of these, of, of, of her most significant decisions, including letting in the refugees, uh, the, the decision to go out of nuclear energy after the Fukushima disaster, her tolerance of uh, Hungarian rebuilding of their, of, of, of their constitutional order into an illiberal democracy, all of these things, I think, have to count, you know, they have, have significant ne negative um, aspects, which will, I think, be uh, held against her in her record. And, and finally, I think my most serious um, concern is that I feel that she's left Germany essentially unprepared for the future. I'll leave it there. Well, that's, that's, that's definitely something I want to come on to. Thank you for that overview. And I'd just like to say, before I come to Michael for his thoughts on this, um, I should have mentioned at the start that we will, of course, be taking questions um, from the audience here. So let us have those, and we will get through them as much as possible once we've con uh, concluded the main part of the conversation. So anyway, with that, Michael, what is your view on Merkel's legacy? How would you rate her chancellorship? Well, I slightly disagree with Constanze. Brilliant essay, by the way. L love to read it. And a lot of things uh, you, you write are right. She's a strategic mastermind. She's an upright character. She's uh, been very good on uh, international diplomacy and all those things. But I would like to start with a small little uh, political story because today, 20 years ago, on June 10th, 2001, the Red-Green Coalition decided, together with the enterprise companies, in, uh, the, the electricity companies in Germany, sorry, to uh, phase out the nuclear power 20 years later. Nine years after that, in 2010, the former environmental minister, Angela Merkel, who had then become chancellor, in a conservative liberal coalition, decided to postpone this phasing out. Only to a half year later, 
after Fukushima had happened to turn back the wheel and to again decide on the phasing out of nuclear power, which has cost the German taxpayer billions. Why am I telling this story? Because I think it tells us something about her leadership style and also about the negative <clears throat> aspects of her uh, approach, her pol political approach. I would describe her leadership style as wait, moderate and react. So she's not the one like Gerd Schröder in, uh, in his chancellorship that seeks the public sphere, that makes bold proposals that people can argue about, that a public democratic discourse is possible about, but rather she is uh, not communicating at all. And if she's communicating in a very technocratic, complicated way, this technocratic approach has left Germany, I think, with three challenges or problems. The first is, I know you cannot make her alone responsible for this development, but the rise of populism, I think, has to do with this approach of not explaining policies good enough. So the rise of populism is part of the legacy of Angela Merkel. Secondly, she has left her own party in shatters, if you want to say, put it that way, absolutely alienated from herself, without orientation and with no program, basically. And therefore, for all parties that will go into a coalition with the Conservative Party in the future, it will be very hard, uh, will be very hard uh, and problematic partner. And thirdly, and you mentioned that, of course, already, uh, there, there have been a lot of uh, policy fields that um, she just left uh, unexplored. And the, uh, just to mention one, which I think is the, one of the most uh, negative aspects, is the rise of inequality in the last decade. And uh, inequalities, as you have to say. So it's not just uh, that the difference between the poor and the rich got stronger, stayed the same at least. It's also uh, inequalities between the cities and the rural areas, inequalities between regions, inequalities between generations. And I think this is one big aspect that she just neglected. I'd like to move on to the, the situation now, but I think something that bridges what we've just discussed and the, the current picture is this question of how much change and how much sort of radical progress do Germans actually want from their chancellor. And I guess I divide that question into how much did they want when Merkel became chancellor and over the years of her chancellorship, and how much do they want now? Are we seeing now this so-called Aufbruchstimmung, this, this mood for change or transformation? Because I think one of the, one of the defenses that's sometimes given for Merkel's style of politics is that she is the small-c conservative chancellor of a small-c conservative country. She has remained remarkably popular throughout her time as chancellor. Germans give relatively positive answers on average when asked how satisfied they are with their lives. It is a country that famously values stability and order. So I suppose I'd like to hear from both of you on that question, both with regards to the time during which Merkel has, has governed, but also as to where we are now. Did or do Germans want more change than they're getting? Constanza, would you like to have a, have a first swing at that? You know, I, I, if, I, if I might, I'd also like to respond to Dominic. Um, my sense is honestly that the, the Chancellor's sort of opaque communication style is of course part of the way in which she deployed power. It was precisely the point to be opaque because she didn't want to let herself be pinned down. In, in that, she's sort of rather like an octopus, you know, uh, deploys a cloud of, of, inky, of inky smoke and, and, you know, when the smoke clears, she's somewhere else. What, what was more important for the rise of populism was 
paradoxically, her liberalization of the CDU, pushing it into triangulating it into the middle, by which, of course, she squeezed the Social Democratic Party to the wall, really, and left the right wing of the party uncovered politically, something um, previous conservative chancellors had taken great care to avoid, and that left a political vacuum for, for the AFD. That, that strikes me as the more important reason. Now, as for Germans and change, well, I would just say, um, in defense of, of my countrymen and women, that people perhaps underestimate a bit just how significant the transformational shocks to Germany have been in the last 30 years. I was just looking this up recently, and people keep talking about the refugee crisis, the arrival of a million plus refugees uh, in, in, a, in a year in, in 2015 and thereafter as, as just a you know unprecedented transformational shock. But between 1988 and 1993, there was a net immigration in Germany of 3.4 million. And this was the, the beginnings of the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union and, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall. That was extraordinary. And I think that it really is the shock of that era and reunification, both for Western Germany and Eastern Germany, that we have neither fully acknowledged as a country nor certainly fully digested. And then after that, you had the global financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis. You had the refugee crisis. You had the rise of populism. But really, I, I, think it's, I think we need to go back to those 30 years and acknowledge that we haven't been honest with ourselves about just how transformational that was for Germany. You know, there's been a lot of change. And actually, in those 30 years, Germany achieved a great deal, but also a lot was left undone. And I think what... What I would like to see future chancellors uh, doing differently is to speak differently to citizens. Look, remember Helmut Kohl saying in, in the early 1990s that there would be blooming landscapes in Eastern Germany and uh, they would be paid for by, by growth. Yeah. The costs of reunification have now been calculated over the past 30 years at about, I think, 20 billion um, astounding sums. And there have been sums for the West, uh, sorry, costs for the West and costs for the East. I tend to think the psychological, social and political costs in the East were greater. Uh, and, the net, and I'm talking about the net costs, not just the total costs. Of course, they had benefits as well. And, and we're seeing those in, you know, in, in the extraordinary strengths that the populist party, the hard right party, the AFD, still has in the East, as we just saw in last Sunday's election in Sachsen-Anhalt, where they came in at just short of 21% which is astounding given that that's one of the most rad radical and extreme regional divisions of the AFD. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the points about the, the sheer degree of transformation that Germany's gone through over the, the past 30 years is a really good one. And I mean, certainly my own analyses of this is something that I always try to bring to the, the, to the question of what Merkel's achieved, because as you say, Michel, you know, the red-green government pushed through a lot of change. You know, this was the government that managed the, the, the unemployment crisis that in many ways actually had to grapple with the costs of the reunification, as, as, as Constance has mentioned, um, but that also started asking big questions about German identity and about the future of the German economic model and industrial model. And I sort of wonder if, I, I agree with a lot of your criticisms of Merkel, but I wonder if maybe uh, it's worth seeing her as the chancellor who bedded in some of that tumultuous change from the previous certainly the previous eight years or even the previous 15 years um, since, since reunification, you know, how, how, how radical a, a, a chancellor was Germany really willing to, to have 
know, after all of that. But anyway, mm. could we have your thoughts on, I think, particularly the mood in Germany at the moment? Because, you know, you're, you're in the Bundestag, you, you're obviously following the debates running up to the election. Do you think there's an Aufbruchstimmung in, in the country? I do, but I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. <laughs> so the general mood in Germany right now, I would describe uh, along uh, four notions. First one is people are tired, people are relieved because Corona seems to be over. You can go out on the streets again, uh, get some wine, etc. They are insecure about the future, about the future of our economy, the future of our state, the social future and so on, but also about Corona itself. What will happen in the fall? Will we get a fourth wave? That's a big issue. And they are also, and, and that's what we measure in the, in the polls, there's, there's coming out of this uh, an, an anger against the government for the big mismanagement that took place in the last months. Vaccines were ordered too little and too late. They, we have two huge scandals about the ma uh, ordering of masks from uh, the conservative uh, health minister and so on. So a big uh, anger about the mismanagement. And these four things fuel something I would describe as a wind of change. And Das Progressive Zentrum has published a, a survey on the issue. And uh, we ask, what kind of leadership style do Germans want at the moment? Almost half of Germans say that the successor of Angela Merkel must be ready for change, must take new paths in a brave way and be assertive. And only 15% say that they are keen of the moderating style of Angela Merkel. So this, and this resonates with another survey by Bertelsmann Stiftung, according to which more than 60% say that uh, they want a new government. That is a very high number and can only be compared to 1998, where you had the... Um, uh, the SPD and Greens takeover in 2005 when Merkel got into power. So very high numbers. Of course, the question is, what is a new government? And what should a new government do? And if you get, get into details there, it's a little bit more complicated. Very high on the agenda is climate policy, of course, in Germany. But secondly, also still refugee and migra migration. For me, the question is, if we assume that there is a momentum for change now, that, that uh, she leaves a void that is an opportunity structure for uh, the other parties, uh, because you know, the CDU is probably not going to gain from this mood. The CDU will be elected for stability and security. So who's going to profit? It will be the Greens, and they are very... Uh, historically high in the polls at the moment, more than 20%. The FDP, the Liberal Party, which has positioned itself in the last months as something like a reasonable critique force against the corona measures without being too populist and is, is also polling very well. The, the really interesting uh, and open question for the left camp will be what happens to the SPD. You know, because the SPD is struggling, has been a junior partner for the second time in a row now uh, of Angela Merkel. And the question is, will they be considered as part of the solution or as part of the 
problem, as part of the technocratic problem that we have uh, had in the past. And yeah, it's, all will depend on the campaign in the next three months. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One of, the, one of the striking things is that you say that there is this, this, this mood for change, and yet you, get, you look at the polls, for example, recent ones about the preferred candidates to be chancellor. I don't want to make this just about the horse race, but we are, we are talking about the role of chancellor here. Um, and you have, you know, there is obviously a certain amount of support for Annalena Baerbock, the chancellor candidate of the Greens, although it's come off some of its recent highs in the last week or so. But you still have pretty solid numbers for Armin Laschet, the CDU, CSU candidate, and Olaf Scholz, the SPD candidate. We could debate their merits, um, but neither of those, to me, come across as makers of change. You know, Laschet is a very conventional Christian Democrat. He would govern, we assume, in the Merkel tradition. He's already been head of the biggest German, the most populous German state. So he's not exactly coming out of left field. Uh, and then you have Olaf Scholz, who's literally Merkel's vice chancellor, finance minister, and in some ways, I would argue, a bit of an heir to her political style. Certainly, if he, if he did end up becoming chancellor, his, his sort of, he's quite dry, he's, he represents stability. So how do, we, how do we reconcile those two things? I mean, um, I don't know if Constance would like to come in on this. And, and, and perhaps, I don't know if we could, we could talk a bit about the possible coalitions after the election. But just any thoughts on the, the, the mismatch between what sure. seems like a mood for change and candidates that don't necessarily exude that? Yes. Uh, I mean, Jeremy, I think you're quite right to point out that paradox. And if we look at Sunday's election in Sachsen-Anhalt and the fact that the popular incumbent minister-president, CDU, Rainer Haseloff, got votes from every party, including Die Linke, which is astounding, then you, I think, can see that there are, you know, the German political landscape does have some surprises up its sleeve. And that, I think, also suggested that people wanted a quantity that they knew, that they thought was reliable and uh, predictable. So I think that that might be a bit of a bellwether for, for the national elections. That said, um, according to the surveys that we've been seeing, the political landscape is as fragmented as it's ever been. It's uh, the 
coalition variables and the coalition maths are just completely wide open. Everything is possible, except I think. I mean, if if German if if German voters really go for predictability, they will elect a two-way coalition, and that would then be a CDU Green coalition. But on current polling, I think the the more likely option is a three-way coalition, and that could go in any direction, a, a Germany coalition, a Jamaica coalition, a traffic light coalition, and we'll just have to see how that goes. The, 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 you point out very accurately that all of the three candidates who stand a chance of becoming chancellor have attractions and significant downsides, rather like Michael herself. I have to say, I myself am completely torn. I find Annalena Baerbock attractively confident. I think if you want change and if you want a new direction, then she stands for that. But I think that the way that she and her staff have handled the revelations, which are relatively minor, of, about her CV, are, are actually do undermine confidence in her a little bit. I mean, I, her significant disadvantage is that she has no governance experience whatsoever which you would kind of want for the anchor economy in, in, in Europe at a time when the role of that anchor economy is likely to be truly crucial, given the sort of quite aggressive interference by, by China and by Russia. We've just had the uh, German intelligence service heads last week telling us that interference by, by these two was on levels not seen since the Cold War. Honestly, Laschet, whom... I went to law school with in Bonn in the in the in the first half of the eighties. Appears to be a decent and and supremely predictable kind of man, but I I find the way in which he sort of deals with questions of foreign policy, the question of what needs to change, personally rather off-putting because he he doesn't seem to see that the strategic landscape around Germany really has changed quite starkly and that we may need a, a much um, clearer realignment than what he seems to be proposing, which is what Germans would call Weitersor, and in English or rather Latin is the status quo. And then finally, you've got with Olaf Scholz, somebody who's extraordinarily experienced, played a significant role in the European recovery program, one which for, for which I think he does deserve a place in the history books, but has a a parliamentary whip um, in, in Rolf Mützenich, who would like to take the party security policy back to the 1980s. So honestly, I've, I have concerns about all of them. Absolutely. And, and I think actually Laschet's um, foreign policy instincts do rather undermine the idea that he stands for stability, because stability in today's geopolitical environment to me, at least, does, doesn't the feel like... Is the ability to adapt. Is the ability exactly. to, to adapt and to recognise reality, yeah. uh, which, which exactly. I would say Precisely. some of his comments yeah. and would And I'm quite concerned not. about that. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, um, Michel, what's your, what's your view? Do, do, you, do you think there is a real chance that you might end up with a left-of-centre-led government? We can come on to the question of, where, of whether the SPD might catch up with the Greens or not, but let's, let's assume the, the, the assumption is that the CDU would lead the next government. What do you think are the chances that it won't? Excuse me? What? what do you Chances that it won't, that the next government will be led from left of the centre? Well, uh, it's very hard to predict. Um, as I said, I think it's a situation that is really open. And the question is, will this be three months where people are lying at the beach 
and for, try to forget what happened in the last year and uh, come back and uh, just vote the status quo that they have always voted or is this mood for change still there? Yeah? And this can be influenced by campaigns and I see the most potential for change in terms of numbers with Olaf Scholz. I agree with you that he is uh, he, he appears to be the Angela Merkel number two, and that was part of this, his strategy at first, that he thought, okay, I, I will just grasp all the conservative votes from Merkel that, that the CDU now cannot reach anymore. But he realized that this does not work and that he has to be more bold, more aggressive, and more emotional, you know. I don't know if he manages to change his style and his election campaign, but I think he, from all those three candidates, he has the most potential to increase his uh, popularity, and he, he already is uh, pretty popular. And I also see a gap in the market for him, because the, the Greens clearly stand for renewal, they have a fresh candidate, they uh, are very popular among the young, and they have a base, they know where they stand, they have a strategy. The, the SPD is a little bit more has been a little bit more ambivalent in the past, and I, I see one gap, and this, this gap that they should and could use is to offer a realistic plan for the transformation into the ecological age, the env environmental age. Realistic plan means to not only describe goals, but also describe ways of how to achieve goals. I'll give you one example. A couple of weeks ago, we increased the goals for the next decades of how much carbon dioxide we are allowed to use as a country. Now, the federal regions are really upset because they don't know how to build enough power lines to get the um, electricity from the wind areas and sunny areas to the south. So environmental policy is very complicated and has to do with good planning. And I think competence is an issue here, and if he plays this card intelligently, I think he can convince some. Just very briefly, do you, do you see voters voting on, actually voting on the environment when it comes down to it? Because I know a lot of them will tell pollsters, I care terribly about the environment. But, I mean, if that's the case, then Laschet, who does not have a great record on the environment, might be seen to be in trouble. Do you think people will actually end up voting on those subjects? I was skeptical a long time, but since it has been steadily polling so hard and so high, so high. I'm convinced it's, it's one of the main issues, yes. And no party can afford not to talk about it. And the second uh, um, um, point I would like to make is you have to have a climate policy that is socially just, you know, and that's also a, a point that Olaf Scholz can make more strongly than now. But I would also like to talk, if we're going to move to this subject, which of the possible coalition scenarios is realistic? Should we come to this question? Because I find this uh, particularly interesting. As you say, Constance, the numbers might suggest that we're going in the direction of a three-party a three government, which of course would be a first at German federal level. And in fact, the two, <clears throat> the two governments uh, spoken of, or the two combinations of parties spoken of, are, but would both be a first um, at a federal level, as there is, the, as you say, the, the traffic light, so uh, uh, the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Liberals in some combination, um, or Jamaica, so the 
Christian Democrats, the Greens and, and the Liberals. And we've seen both of those at a state level in one or two places, but never before at a federal level. Just briefly from both of you, perhaps starting with Constanza, could we just hear any thoughts on how likely you think it is that one or both of those would work? Because that's in both cases, you're talking a wide range of different political instincts and traditions, some obvious areas of disagreement. Any reflections on those two possibilities, traffic light and, and Jamaica, as, as, as viable for, models for German government? Well, the, the, I think the irony here is, is this, that based on um, political views and party programs and the preferences of the base, any of these ought to be extremely complicated. Um, because those are quite far apart on the economy, on climate issues, on foreign and security policy, domestic issues, you name it. There, there would be a lot of things to discuss in a coalition agreement. However, uh, the Liberals are in a bind because they walked out of Jamaica four years ago after three months of negotiations. And I think they are now on probation for good behavior. So I think their, their, room, for, their room for tantrums is, is distinctly limited by this experience, which uh, the scars of which their co-negotiators in the other parties still bear. I think there are real grudges there from those coalition knights and the, and the walkout by, by Christian Lindner. So anybody who negotiates with the Liberals will know the Liberals are desperate to be back in power um, for the first time since, since the, uh, really since reunification. So that would be, in terms of power politics, a little easier than before. The Greens, likewise, are desperate to be back in, in, in federal government again. They've been in a federal government before as the junior partner in uh, 1998 when they took over under Chancellor Schroeder from Helmut Kohl at the height of the Kosovo air war. And of course, they're still hoping for the option of a green, of a green chancellor. So again, I think the Greens you know, have, have demonstrated by their, in, in their campaign just how disciplined they're willing to be. But, but, but we've also seen, I think, in this discussion about Annalena Baerbock's CV, a little bit of slippage of discipline. And, and that, that was a case where they'd clearly missed a trait. I was part of a uh, foreign and security policy working group uh, called uh, More Ambition, Please, which was organized by the GMF, which I used to run in Berlin, and uh, the Heinrich Böll Foundation, a paper that was published in January. and. Um, contained a rather full-throated commitment to the to nuclear participation by Germany. The left wing of the Greens on publication of that paper reacted as though they'd collectively been stung by a tarantula. Um, we saw Jürgen Trittin, Agnieszka Brucker and others going public. And uh, I, I gather that uh, the head of the Bell Foundation um, got a lot of criticism from the party base, um, from, from uh, students, uh, regional groupings, et cetera, et cetera. You know, never ever underestimate the, the ability of the left wing of the Greens and of the sort of yeasty party base to make trouble when they feel like it. And presumably they will feel like it if they think that, that their bosses are going to get anywhere near power. I think that the Social Democrats have been both exceedingly disciplined and responsible in not just two, Michael, but three uh, grand coalitions with, with yes. uh, Angela Merkel. I think they've actually done really good work in power in, in the briefs that they've had, whether it was environment or, or, or finance. Um, they've had some really important jobs, and I think they did them well, labor ministry as well. 
But at the same time, they have a they they have a left wing that has been dreaming of a, a, a center left coalition with Die Linke. Something I think that Die Linke itself is basically uh, has undermined so completely that that is a non option. But that left wing is still there, and in coalition negotiations, will will want to be satisfied. And it has some very distinct views on foreign and security policy. As I was saying earlier, nuclear participation is one of them. They want to get out of that. They don't like armed drones, um, and there are a number of other issues that I think they would have very strong views on. So I would expect difficult, protracted coalition negotiations um, that would be um, anything but predictable. That instance with the, uh, the, the paper that you mentioned was a, a very interesting look into some of the, the strains you might see in coalition talks, let alone in actually such a government. Michelle, you're, 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 you've got a front Absolutely. row seat. Indeed, exactly. You've got, a, you've got a front row seat for this, you know, in the Bundestag. Do you ever kind of look at some of the parties that are talked of as being members of a, of a, single, of a single coalition after the election and think, how on earth are these people going to work together? Yes, and especially if you bear in mind that the Green Parliamentary Group in the next uh, term will be much bigger than today, probably. So there's going to be a lot of people that will be in the Bundestag for the first time, and it will be hard to hold them together. And uh, I, also, I already mentioned the big polarization of the parliamentary group of the CDU especially. So that's going to be, I think, a very, very big task to hold those two together. That's why I would like to warn a little bit that a conservative green coalition, in, on my opinion, will really be a tough ride. I know it has been prepared by some of both sides. I know that many journalists and media uh, like the idea because it's a fascinating um, possibility that's new. But I think uh, at the end of the day, the Greens, especially the Greens, would suffer tremendously because they are out with a clear message of change and the CDU, CSU in, in their current state will not be able to allow them a radical transformation of the German model. We've also seen how difficult it is for junior coalition partners. I mean, the SPD has proven yeah. that, that you can you can push through all sorts of great ideas, but you very rarely get thanked for it by the German electorate. And I mean, I can absolutely see why, as Constanza says, the Greens will go for the Chancery if they possibly can, because it's just you know you, you, it's not like being number two, but slightly more so. It's 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 fundamentally different. And yeah, yeah. And and also just imagine uh, European policies. The Greens want to allow the EU to borrow money, not just for the recovery fund, but also in the long term. This is one of the main European policy uh, proposals, which will not be possible with uh, the Conservatives, definitely not. But there's also one argument against this coalition, that's uh, an argument, a more general argument. I would argue that it would be a coalition of the bourgeoisie. You know, it would be the what we call Bürgertum. You know, the the the, the older citizens, the the uh, uh, wealthy citizens, affluent people, and their children that have gr grown up. Some of them have grown up now, and uh, they will leave out 50% of the population. I know that the Greens have a very left program, but I'm talking about who is represented, and. Both the Greens and the uh, CDU are, uh, well, the Greens even more, are a very academic, uh, elite-oriented uh, party. And so that's really uh, a big problem, I think, f uh, in the long term, if you have such a coalition. But any brief thoughts on that from, 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 from within the Bundestag? Because I'd like to get on to one final thing before yeah. we go to questions. Do you, do, do you think that would work? 
Um, Which one? Uh, the traffic light coalition. Mm. I don't know. But in preparation of this talk, I thought about it a little bit uh, longer and um, I found some arguments in favor of it, if the numbers uh, enable such a coalition. SPD and Greens are natural partners. They have the most programmatic proximity and it will not be very hard to find compromises, I think. The problem here is the liberal FDP. But I would argue that for the FDP, it could be a very interesting option to develop, to reinvent itself as something like a modern, state-of-the-art liberal party, also open for migrants and younger people. I think this migrant idea is especially interesting for the FDP because in this coalition, I think one of the claims should be to um, create an open society. And the FDP at the moment, you know, they, they have some tendencies sometimes to try to grasp voters from the AFD and they completely neglect that they have a big potential with the migrant population because the migrant population, they are basically liberal because they work in small shops that they themselves own. A lot of them are self-employed and so on. You, you know, you, you just go on the streets and look who owns the stores, the shops. That's, that's the classic clientele of a liberal, economically liberal party. My proposal would be that this traffic light, or my suggestion, would be that this traffic light uh, coalition could come up with certain projects that both parties could agree upon. So you would have a social democratic strain, a green strain and a liberal strain. They could agree on innovation, innovating the economy, innovating the social system. They could agree on preventive policies, preventive social policies and equality of opportunity right away. They could agree on pushing forward an active state an active state, not meaning necessarily a large state, but a powerful state, a state that is able to, to act. I already mentioned open society uh, and defending liberal democracy. And last but not least, uh, civic rights. That's also a, a big thing that both of them um, have in their program. So I think it's, it's, it could be realistic. It seems to me that with any of these possibilities, the question is, do the differences of the, between the parties simply cancel each other out so they don't get much done and or cause, cause uh, disagreements and, and uh, turmoil? Or do they say, we agreed to disagree on these things and we're each going to try and put forward our best foot and, and, and bring what we can? And I think that actually also applies to J Jamaica too. You can imagine each party bringing strengths to that that would make a strong whole, but it's also possible imagine, to imagine them just arguing. Um, Constance, it'd be interesting to have your thoughts on that, but I'd like if you could possibly bundle them with, with uh, an answer to my, the final question I wanted to get to in the sort of discussion part of this before we go to the questions, which is a big one. What should the next chancellor, he or she, when they walk into the office vacated with, uh, from, by Angela Merkel, uh, when her, her, her furniture and things have been removed and it's the first day and they walk in there, what should be their top three priorities, would you say, whether it's domestic or foreign? What would be the biggest items on their agenda on that first day? Um, Constanza, I, I don't know if you wanted to come in on the traffic light point, um, but anyway, if you could um, give, us, give us your thoughts on that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that you know, Germany's bourgeoisie, and that's a term that I haven't really heard since my student days. I think that that's an aspiration that continues to exist in Germany. And I would, I would just also say that if you're concerned about being seen as, you know, about, about the bourgeoisie, then perhaps I would choose a different kind of apartment to have this conversation in. I mean, it does sort of look very, you know, that, that does look like a very upper middle class apartment by, by Berlin standards. And, and, the, and the wall colouring is positively Pharaoh and Boer. 
But anyway, um, I will. <laughs> Good point, touche. <laughs> <laughs> We don't wear trousers. So. <laughs> yes. Look, I think I think the the next chancellor won't have anything to remove from Angela Merkel. Um, remember that Angela Merkel um, arrived in her in her office and saw this enormous desk that Gerhard Schröder's architect uh, had specially constructed for him at uh, Gerhard Schröder's behest and uh, has been using it as a depository of, of stacks of books and papers ever since. And I think she works at a small sort of corner table in in that same office. I, I doubt that Angela Merkel's move will you know involve significant lifting of furniture. And I th I also think to be to be serious now that the next chancellor doesn't have the luxury of choosing priorities. Really, the country is in a state of delayed transformation on so many issues from domestic resilience to the economy uh, to foreign and security policy that the next chancellor's task and the next coalition's task is going to be doing all these things at the same time. I have to say, I've been most impressed by how the Biden administration went to work here. Um, they had clearly spent nearly a year working in, in, in large working groups, devising their policies, devising action plans. And I can only pray that the German parties are doing something similar. If so, I haven't really heard about it. Frankly, I, my, my concern really is that we do not have the luxury as a country in the middle of Europe, as the anchor economy and as the point that um, external aggressors think is the Archimedean point of the, of, of the alliance and of the European Union. We do not have the luxury of introversion and of wasting time, particularly given the challenge of the French election in the spring of 2022, where Marine Le Pen is polling neck to neck with with Macron and and they are the only two candidates left standing. We just do not have the option of of faffing around like we did in 2017. And that's my most important point. So professionalism, yeah. preparation and just getting on with it, I think are the order of the day. Absolutely. And you, you just don't know when the next crisis is going to come. I mean, whether we're talking about the pandemic or we've also seen in the Merkel era how external events can can, can blow a government onto a different course. And so I, I think moving ahead quickly with the long-term stuff as fast as possible is, is essential. Uh, Michel, what do you think? I mean, what, what, maybe kind of um, zooming in a bit on some of those areas. There's this great need for modernization. There are these issues that have been delayed or parked under the Merkel era. What needs to be confronted first and most urgently? Well, I mean, my first point would be, I would suggest a, a program or a big initiative for burden sharing uh, after Corona. Uh, because of all the debt that has been produced in the last two years. I think we have to come up with a plan who's going to pay the bill, who's going to pay more. And this must include a uh, bold tax reform where probably the wealthy need to pay more than now. And if it's possible, the um, lower paid uh, should pay less. So that's that burden sharing um, argument uh, would be the first one. The second one is I would suggest some kind of big program for social cohesion or big initiative for social cohesion. So something that uh, encompasses the attempt to uh, unleash the forces in society to become more solitaristic, to work together more closely and so on. So what I'm thinking about is like money for neighborhood centers where people can meet even in rural areas where sometimes, you know, in little towns you don't have a place to, to come together. 
uh, money for train stations. We have 10,000 train stations in Germany and only a few of them actually have people working there. And you could um, develop many of those train stations into uh, centers where you can buy stuff, meet yourself, meet people and so on. And I also f still find it a very interesting topic um, to think about something like a initiative where young people work in a social area for one year, like a, a common year, such as we used to have as the, what we call civil service. I don't know that how, how you would call it in, in, in English. Of course, then the biggest challenge uh, will be the transformation of the economic and ecological model that we have. And you should uh, start making plans on how you have to build the infrastructure to make it possible and rebuild the economy. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of stuff ahead for the next chancellors. Not going to be an easy ride. Well, we hope you enjoyed that conversation at the Progressive Governance Summit. And if you want more on German politics and European politics in particular, I'd strongly recommend taking out a subscription to the New Statesman at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. We're going to be covering the German election in great detail over the next months. There really is no better time to sign up. Many listeners to World Review will be paying attention to the G7 Summit over this weekend as we record this. I'm pleased to say that we have three excellent past episodes, one with David Miliband, the president of the International Rescue Committee, one with Harry Lambert of The New Statesman on Britain's foreign policy, and one with Rachel Rizzo of the Truman Center. And I'd strongly recommend you also take a listen to those because they give a real sense of depth and background to the summit over this weekend. So you can find those at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. Emily and I will be back on Monday with a special episode of World Review to recap and analyze the results of the G7 summit. So look out for that too. And until then, have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.